This is another Patreon-only bonus episode. And today we're doing something a little bit different. We're talking to a guy called Grafton Tanner, who wrote a book about the theories around Vaporwave. Now, as I'm sure most of you will realize, um, you know, Vaporwave is definitely a theme I use with Popular Front now. It's not just graphics. It's not just, oh, that's a bit pink. Or, you know, you've run every fucking image on your computer through Get Mosh. That is not Vaporwave. It's actually quite an interesting subversive kind of culture and concept behind it so i spoke to grafton tanner a while ago about his book for another project i'm, I'm probably going to work on and i thought you know what this might be a good opportunity to show people that like popular front you know get an idea of um the kind of niche theory around vaporwave and what it is and what it means and blah 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 it's really nerdy but you know you might like it he wrote this book, Babbling Corpse, Vaporwave and the Commodification of Ghosts. Tell us about that. Why did you write it and what's it all about? Well, it's it originally started out as kind of a, a, a letter of like admiration to to that particular genre of music, Vaporwave. I mean, it, I, I came across it um, a little later probably than I would have, than I wanted to. I, I, I first heard about it like, probably the end of 2012 and at this time I was like coming out of uh coming out of college and I ran across it online somewhere and I dug into it I mean it was it was the kind of thing that 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 sort of underground appeal was really appealing uh to me then and it still is um this sort of a whole kind of cultural ecosystem that is um thriving and and like the surface world, if you will, doesn't even know or, or whatever. Um, and the first thing I did was, um, I mean, it was more than just the the underground appeal. It was also, you know, what gets called like the vaporwave aesthetic was really appealing. I mean, it was, um, you know, I felt like I got it, but I didn't really start to think about it any more than just like, this is very strange. And it kind of reminds me of, you know, some other electronic stuff that I was into at the time, sort of like early plunder phonics kind of music. And my friends and I would get together and I would, I would play it for them and, and gauge their reaction. It was kind of like my way of doing like reaction videos, just seeing like, what do you think about this? This is kind of strange, right? All right. So maybe if we back up a little bit, maybe you can define for you what Vaporwave is, because, you know, I know it's not an easy thing to kind of put a definition on. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I think there's two things there. I mean, there's like the vaporwave uh, genre of music, which um, is kind of like, I mean, in probably most simplest terms, uh, uh, samples of soft rock and like mall music, stuff you would hear like walking through a mall in the 90s, something you would hear on old FM radio, uh, something you would maybe hear in commercials in the 80s and 90s. Um, chopped up and sampled and affected in a way that um, usually makes it sound degraded, maybe like slowed down, um, soaked in a kind of reverb, makes it sound kind of cavernous, makes it sound like almost a warped record player or a warped television, um, or like a, a bad memory of a trip to a grocery store or something and uh that's that's kind of like it in its most simplest terms but but then you know sort of it it's a part of this lineage of art that is subversive because it uses the um 
kind of the the cultural material that's at hand uh, and samples it and appropriates it in a way that undermines that material and in, in that way it it you know it's almost like what was going on like late 90s early 2000s and with like culture jamming um but it updates that in a way in which it almost seems a little more anonymous and culture jamming of that time was like you know very much like we are this organization we are uh doing something like say switching the voice boxes of of barbies and and like gi joes and we're the ones doing it and we're going to let you know on like the most public of screens that we're doing it and the opposite of of that would be vaporwave which is a, a very much subversive uh artistic act but it's not necessarily like they're trying to get um, notoriety for being subversive right right and it's there's also this political element to it now right i mean the book very much focuses on that in certain areas absolutely and that um that was something that i started to dig into and and do a little more research on when writing the book and have a number of conversations with with critics like um adam harper who was probably the first one to identify that hey maybe there's you know, maybe we could read this through like a kind of a Marxist lens, if you will. But it wasn't really until I um, spoke with Ramona Xavier, who's kind of like, I mean, we could maybe credit her with, in a way, creating Vaporwave or what we may know of as like classic early Vaporwave. She is the the one behind the um, floral shop, uh, Macintosh Plus project. But um, so I, I spoke with her and I was like, you know, this is this is kind of what I'm reading into it. And I wanted to know like what her intentions were. And she was very much in agreement that what she was doing not only was making, you know, an interesting kind of electronic music, but a kind of music that would take what she would call like the nostalgia factor of today and sort of uh, subvert it in a way that maybe would expose more of the ugly realities of living in you know, what some might refer to as late stage capitalism. And what is that for anybody that doesn't know? I know, uh, what is it? Mark Fisher's concept, is it? Um, it, it he, he's drawing on it from like, um, probably the, the closest uh, analog would be like Frederick Jameson writing in the 1980s that this kind of capital or this, this stage in capitalism is reaching um, not only a saturation point or reaching uh, an, an almost breaking point, acceleration to the point of breaking, um, but also that the the kind of culture that's being created um, is is in a sense hollowed out. Um, it's what he would call like a blank parody, a kind of pastiche that makes no political commentary whatsoever. And there's many people who would disagree with him about that. So this idea that like um, capitalism is going to go through stages and the final stage is one in which it falls apart and collapses and then something gets built up afterwards. And that's not necessarily something I totally endorse or necessarily believe in, but um, it's definitely um, a way to read the, you know, our current moment. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I, I don't know, a lot of people say to me, Oh, it's, you know, you just over exaggerating, but I don't think I am. I think a lot of young people, especially now are kind of really feeling that, that like magnolia, like this dry rot, you know, in the culture where nothing really, it doesn't really mean anything, you know, nothing really lasts, every scandal is over in seconds, everything is blown out of proportion, and then it all just kind of stays the same, you know, I think a lot of young people especially are dying for something else, but then like you say in your book, there is this kind of weird association with uh, it's like a past that we haven't even experienced. And it's like people are longing for a time that they didn't even have. Um, why do you think that is? Do you think that's to do with, like you're saying, this late stage capitalism? Or do you think it's something else? Because 
I know a lot of people that say, believe me, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we had the same feeling. So, you know, I, we've only lived in this time period, so we don't know. Right. And that's, that's a really, that's probably the topic that interests me the most because it's true that, you know, the, the research on something like nostalgia for previous periods is um, pretty clear that it's kind of like a basic part of the human condition in a way. Um, it doesn't ever really get named until about the 17th century. Um, and then we could look back at even just the past 20th century's uh, appropriation and reappropriation of, of bygone time periods and as a way to, to sell products and pop culture. But the, the difference is... Because nostalgia always comes about, it peaks in, in, in very unstable time periods, in periods of crisis. Obviously, you can say that we have been living in a crisis period for some time now, and, um, and, and um, probably at least the majority of our current century. But there are three main reasons why the nostalgia of today is, is especially unique, um, and, the, and, and why we would maybe point to, um, you know, uh, 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 kind of, you know, young young people uh, being nostalgic for previous periods, etc. The first is that you have unprecedented access to history thanks to the internet. And this is something that I touched on in Babbling Corpse is that, you know, we, it's just kind of a fact of uh, ubiquitous Wi-Fi and, and, and digital technology that we're able to dig up periods of the past that maybe we and you know maybe we couldn't previously, and also scrutinize them to a to a finer detail maybe than previously. You've also got the fact that um, this is probably the second reason, um, which is that you've got two major historical national kind of crises in the past you know uh, almost twenty years. One is nine eleven, and the other one would be the sort of worldwide economic meltdown in 2008. And now you would maybe even point to the election of Donald Trump as being sort of a third major national shock that, you know, is going to, according to the literature that's out there, have, you know, create an uptick in nostalgia. And and then the other, the, the, the last reason I would say that we have a, um, we have so much nostalgia today is, is the fact that um, the way that we consume art is drastically different. And that way is essentially through what's called collaborative filter, filtering, um, which is, you know, we, we, we a, a approach a streaming service, for example, or, or any YouTube, Spotify, what have you. Um, and we have certain things that we look up and certain things that we like, and the algorithm takes note of this and then delivers back to us more of the same thing to think that that's what we're going to be into. And that automatically creates a feedback loop, which is going to create certain ideological or cultural echo chambers in which many of us are probably familiar with having spent time on Twitter. Um, but what happens is, is that after 2008, when you have this uptick in nostalgic art being created, that stuff starts to get look, looked up more, the algorithms take note, and then they start to deliver the things that are going to sound the most like what we've been looking up. And then, of course, after that, then the content creators take note of this, and that's where you get things like Stranger Things or like like the It remake or that band Greta Van Fleet, which are 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 ways to capitalize on this kind of trend and get the most plays uh out of the streaming platform so those are kind of the that's kind of my micro theory of at least the you know present day nostalgia yeah so it sounds like it's like a subversive culture now 
can only last for a very small amount of time before it's commodified, would you say? Absolutely. And that's a that's um, a direct result of, of free market capital, which is a sort of um, colonization or what gets called like sometimes the cool cycle where things get picked up. I think this comes from Douglas Rushkoff. Things get picked up and colonized quickly and then left behind. And so, yeah, it's very hard to have sustained movements without those tendrils kind of creeping in. You could work with them to an extent, I think, but you have to be careful because um, really I think the, the, the main challenge is, is if you want to escape that cul-de-sac of nostalgia, it's now much harder to do so because doing so would be at odds with the kind of economic model of algorithm-based streaming. Yeah, and it's like it's getting everywhere for example the other day i was in uh i was on a in a sports shop and there was this it was like a nike tracksuit i was going to buy some trainers and there was like a, a pink stripe down one side and a bit of purple on it and i just happened to look at it and it said a uh, nike air max vaporwave <laughs> yeah so it kind of yeah it really kind of did a did a real full circle for me you know yeah it was weird um so why is it called babbling corpse i should have probably asked you that at the start but why why have you chosen that name uh, that's a good question, um, and it it probably could have been called something else, <laughs> but it comes from um, a section in the book um, in which I kind of talk about um, the um, the sort of anxiety of um, uh, analog and digital technologies um, uh, operating on their own, so to speak, in a way, and I, I, I uh, took some influence from um, some uh, some literature like uh, Frank, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and also um, Rhyming the Ancient Mariner, which um, I studied in college and sort of found them as critiques about what happens when uh, when certain media, whether it's the written word or um, the phonograph or the TV or the iPhone, um, begins to seem more agentic than maybe a human being uh, capable of like doing its own, doing its own thing. And um, it, it then is inert, but sort of channels a kind of life force that um, is kind of is so, somewhat confounding. And so the image of like a, you know, dead body, for example, that's still able to talk, which comes directly from Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, um, was sort of what I was going off of because in some way you could, you could draw, I mean, my conclusion was that vaporwave to some extent as a commentary on our anxiety of, of technologies sort of running on their own and running amok. Um, but also, uh, you know, um, this idea of what happens to the human being when that occurs and, so and then there's also this this thing with vaporwave being like a dead genre or like an anonymous genre where you can't quite <clears throat> like trace its origin point and so it does seem somewhat like um, you know uh, um, and an, a hard to discern inert thing that still is able to communicate with us in a way it's somewhat like that and. Um- the the subtitle vaporwave and the commodification of ghosts. What does that last bit mean? The commodification of ghosts. I imagine it's related to uh, hauntology, which you touch on in the book. Maybe you can talk about that. Absolutely. Yeah. It. You know the one of the side effects. Um, well, okay. So it's kind of like the 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 thing with nostalgia, where at a certain point, you know. Um, uh, 
content creators and 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 major uh, corporations in the culture industry, if you will, are um, going to pick up on the fact that people are are people want nostalgic media, whether that means remakes or reboots or um, things that sort of ape the styles of of previous decades or, or what have you. Um, and so they're going to respond by colonizing and then commodifying those what you know maybe half memories or or misremembered memories of of previous times and so in a way what then so i guess that's a it's a it's a way of saying the ghosts of of previous times of our past or whatever then become commodified and sold back to us um and the end result is always you know or more likely than not kind of a a reductionist view of history or an amnesiac's view of history. And some of this comes from um, the the writings of Simon Reynolds, who actually talked about, um, you know, what it's like to listen to a, the first phonographs at the turn of the, you know, in, in the 19th going into the 20th century um, and how that in a way is a, is a, is a gesture of controlling ghosts and enslaving them for replay over and over again. It's a, uh, it's a weird concept for me because I think especially this, the, the hauntology situation, I keep seeing it everywhere. And I know, I don't know if it's just me being, you know, paranoid, but not even necessarily within the kind of circles of people who might read Babbling Corpse, you know, even, even like fascist groups, you know, Certainly. you can see them, they're, they're kind of touching on this thing of, uh, oh, we wish we had this, we wish we had that. And there's also the other side of it where, there's almost this hope for destruction, you know, a complete hope for destruction. And I think you're right in the the, te- the the anxiety that technology has created around that. I think the technology has kind of created this weird, boring situation where for things to happen, it has to be quite quite an event. But um, I definitely see that concept growing. I, I know it's kind of niche, like hauntology, but I do think it's it's everywhere now. I feel. Yeah, definitely, and you know, and it's it it's easily picked up and adapted into to to an extent it's easily picked up and adaptable to to a lot of different ideologies one of those being yes a kind of fascist trend to idealize um historical periods that are believed to have been more free or more stable i mean this is this is a direct tactic used by uh, the Trump campaign um, in the United States, and um, and then it gets picked up by groups that, um, you know, sort of um, uh, draw out the nostalgia from his rhetoric and put it uh, sort of on display or put it at the forefront. There are a number of uh, like uh, videos on YouTube, for example, that are of this sort of Trump wave kind of genre in which they splice up, you know, um, audio snippets of his, his speeches or what have you. And they put it to, um, not necessarily vaporwave music. They're not doing that, but they're, they're putting it to a retro, what would be called like a retro wave sort of beat or, or production track. Um, and, and then it becomes like fash wave, for example. And, and so you, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to do that because, you know, what is, uh, it's, it's certainly, a characteristic of of sort of a you know a kind of authoritarian impulse to say what's going on today is very bad um it's backwards and broken and i'm actually the only one who can fix it and a lot of people respond to that and have responded to that 
Yeah, definitely. I think there's also an interesting intersection, which to be honest with my work, I kind of found myself uh, amongst at one point um, and still still I'm definitely like, I find it an interesting little little area, but you have this weird intersection of conflict, people that are focused on conflict, war and conflict. I don't know if you've seen the War Aesthetics YouTube channel, but basically they use old war footage, or not even old war footage, like a lot of it's from like Bosnian war and, and stuff like that, and even some from the Ukraine war. And they'll edit these videos to have that kind of VHS aesthetic, and they'll have like synth wave tracks over the top of it, and it's called Terror Wave, you know, they call it Terror Wave. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. and then there's also T-Wave, which is... Uh, an actual clothing style now where people will dress like an urban gorilla. For example, the provisional IRA is basically, you know, a fashion aesthetic for these kids. And I've got friends who dress like it. They wear, uh, you know, like combat trousers, a pair of Reebok classic nylons, you know, uh, Adidas, just like the provisional IRA. It's, it's mad, you know, and I think how the fuck did all of this end up coming together? And there's, there's also the other side as well, like the Ted Kaczynski fans. Um, but all of that is... I know it is like, you know, people say, oh, it's just the internet, Jay, you're online too much. But I said, no, nah, because a lot of kids are online too much, you know. There is no in real life or whatever now. It's just you're online. Everybody's always online. But yeah, there is that kind of soup is going round. I don't know. I'm, I'm very um, interested to see where it goes. Yeah. And I think there's a number of things going on there because the ability to like add the suffix wave to anything that you can kind of... Um, take uh, just a just a few parts and cobble them together and then do to it the a wave treatment which is like you know uh, using day-to-day aesthetics of music and imagery or whatever um yeah i mean at a certain point it it's like um an impulse to mine as much of the past as possible and you know if you mine a certain area enough, people are going to inevitably get tired of it. And so then you have to go to more outre and like more fringe parts of history to be able to dig things up to then resell and, and that's, or, or to, you know, recirculate. And so there's one thing there, but then there's also the thing that, you know, if you want to really read into the, the kind of um, aesthetics of um, former, uh, you know, um, wars from the past and former conflicts, then, I mean, you could make the argument that, well, we live in a period of total war and it's hard to pinpoint exactly who we're at war with because we're not really at war with any one, you know, country. We're more or less at war with a tactic, which is terrorism and then the ability to um, control the world's oil supply, et cetera. But, um, you know, so for example, a lot of, a lot of Trumpists would, uh, idolize, idealize um, the Cold War because then uh, it, it was easier to maybe identify an enemy or an other to define yourself against. Um, and so there's one thing there. But at a certain point, I think there's sort of there's kind of a race to the bottom of how how much can we plunder the past, give it the wave treatment, and then get a few laughs for a, a few days. But but then these trends sometimes really stick around. People really start dressing. Yeah, yeah, the, the Terror Wave movement, there's um, uh, a Discord server that they, they're all on. They fucking hate me there because I, I tweeted about it once, but, you know, fuck them, whatever. But there's, there's hundreds of them, you know, like hundreds of them. And they're, a lot of them are really cool guys, you know, like very interesting people. And it's not just... I, there's part of me that doesn't like it because it kind of glorifies 
you know, like the Bosnian war and stuff. And, you know, I've been to war. It's not fucking nice. However, there is a part of it that's very fun and is needlessly that, that kind of, I shouldn't say fun, but there is, there is, there's something there you get at war that's very real, you know, and I think that's actually what draws them, whether they realize it or not. I think that's what draws them, you know, so, so much to it because, I think young men, especially in the West, are fucking bored. You know, I read something the other day on Twitter, actually. It was some, it was some like weird frog Twitter account, whatever. I read it and he said, um, he said something like, people are so bored in the West, they'd rather take a nuclear war than go into work tomorrow. And I was like, you know what, that's actually, that's actually really interesting. And they obviously wouldn't rather have a nuclear war because if war came to the doorstep, you know, most of the West would be like, oh, fuck, this is awful and this is horrible. But there is definitely, I, I don't know, there's definitely a kind of a segment of our culture, I think, who are just so fucking bored that, you know, they, they do want some kind of conflict. And we have kind of seen that, you know, you see a lot of Westerners, have, okay, granted it's a couple of hundred, maybe a thousand, but Westerners that have gone over to Syria to fight for the YPG, but also on the other side, you see the thousands of Westerners going to fight for ISIS. Now, obviously, there's ideological reasons behind that, but I also think there is that thing of like, I'm fucking bored in the West. Nothing feels real, you know? And, and certainly I felt it being a, a, you know, a journalist that covers conflict. I come back and I love coming back, but then there's certain times where I just catch myself just thinking, fucking hell, I wish I was still doing, you know, whatever it was I was doing. And I don't know, I, I don't know what I'm saying here, but I think a lot of young lads are starting to feel that as well. And young women as well, but I think men are more, you know, they're more um, drawn to the kind of violent side of life. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, as Chris Hedges says, war gives us meaning. And um, it's, you know, if you've got a um, a society that feels meaningless, um, what better way to get people together and against a common thing than to engage in war? Um, I, I think that, you know, the boredom that you're touching on um, and the kind of um, excitement to to engage in warfare, I think a lot of that comes from, uh, or is maybe a direct reaction to the kind of um, screens that on which we, you know, play sort of, you know, interactive war games. And um, in these situations, you know, we're at sort of the end of the chain of command, so to speak. I mean, we're the ones who just carry out the orders playing the game. We don't ever talk about whether or not the the war in Call of Duty is justified or whatever. We just plug in and grab hold of the controller and carry out the mission. And so I think that, you know, decades of, or not decades, but at least the past decade, at least since 9-11, goodness, because then it really, um, you know, it left kind of like the movie theater screens and showed up in the video games Um and, you know, in this period, you've got a, a number of young people, many of them friends of mine, and many of them also male, certainly, um, finding a lot of meaning playing these games because it, it you know, um, uh, spoke to them and, and gave them some kind of community and allowed them to, um, you know, take part in something maybe that was bigger than, than them. So I think that when you, when you, when you have people who are like, I'd rather have a nuclear war, I'd rather have some kind of conflict at my doorstep uh, than go to work tomorrow or something, um, you know, I think they're reacting to what they see as war mediated through the kinds of representations that we, that are, that are all around us, you know, which kind of, you know, paints war as, a, as like always just and as something that, that 
um, provides an individual meaning against a common goal. Um, but the proxy wars that are that the United States tends to wage, um, uh, they, they don't, as you say, they don't look like that on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's very different when someone's bleeding. Um, I want to touch on, uh, you, you spoke earlier a little bit about like echo chambers and there's a really interesting bit in Babbling Corpse. Uh, I've got it here. It's not you that wrote it. You quoted uh, Chris Richards from the Washington Post and it says, clap a little louder or be excommunicated to the valley of the haters. Those are the options in this ludicrous world. Now, I thought that was really interesting because it's actually talking, if I remember, about Taylor Swift and how like this absolute dog shit music that she's making. Do you think... This kind of, you know, like they, they say, be excommunicated to the valley of their haters. Do you think that's particularly bad now? Or do you think it's always been there? Because, you know, a lot of music fans would say, oh, there's always been that kind of just chug along element, you know, pop music. Yeah, that's hard to say because Taylor Swift is a, is a unique example. I mean, she um, she's one of the... She's one of the few pop stars that are kind of propping up the music industry. And in some ways, we have to be thankful for her because without her, we wouldn't really have much of a mainstream music industry. You know, I mean, I'm sure, um, I mean, especially once she went over to streaming, kind of sort of dropped the um, the ideological opposition to, you know, being on Spotify or being on Apple Music. I forget what the what the issue was. But I, and you're referring to 1989, and that, that's a that's a really interesting um case study and sort of the turning point from from um, what was less mainstream nostalgia at the time, what was more circulating in like the indie music scene with bands like Neon Indian, for example, um, and memory tapes. And then what she does is sort of um, siphons it from the underground into kind of at, to like the mainstream level. So it's an interesting turning point because it was it was it was a um, it was an effort intentional effort by her and Jack Antonoff, her, uh, the produ- producer of that record to, um, you know, to make a 80s sounding album, you know? And, um, and then what happened was is it people responded so well to it, you know, because it was like, you know, the, the, the indie kids saw what they were previously listening to on like a grander scale. And then, and then like, uh, more of like what, might be called the mainstream, maybe with without the ear to the ground in a way, then seeing this sort of um, renewed nostalgia in a way that was like, wow, you know, like I remember Polaroids, let's buy this album, you know, and, and the, the song and the album has a ton of bangers. I mean, they're like really, really well, tight knit, well-produced um, pop songs. It's, it's not my favorite album and, and um, by any means. Um, but I, I really think that 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 um, I mean everybody's always a critic, you know, and you've got people who have had divisions over pop stars for quite a long time. Um, but but I think that when you start to have what might be referred to as a monoculture form, um, and these uh, these very powerful stars um, are, you know, you can rally behind them or not. And uh, therefore, there's a division that's created and, and then people have, you know, platforms like Twitter to hurl insults or praise about said pop star. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you've got a kind of division that probably is a little more unique to our time than others. But I, I think about Kanye West as an example, who um, just in the past uh, six months or so has what some people would call like totally derailed his career because of his endorsement of Trump. And um, he's another one of those interesting examples where he kind of helps to prop up the music industry. And you've got tons of people out there who is like, doesn't matter what he does, they're still going to stand behind him. Um, and then those who very easily will write him off like Taylor Swift, for example. I mean, I, I, I was never really a fan of hers cause I, I kind of thought the music was a little like almost that's kind of like Disney ideology, but then like I could see where, um, like why so many people are so into her, do you know what I mean? Um, into her music. Um, but yeah, it's a complicated issue. Uh, and I think a lot of, a lot of mainstream pop music is maybe empty because, um, you know, record labels and the such don't really have the money and the financial support to sign maybe those artists who maybe they could kind of roll the dice on a little bit. We could say, we don't have to, we don't have to devote so much money to this figure because they're not Kanye West or not Taylor Swift, but we can sign a. But I think about like a band like Japan back in the in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, or 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 someone like Kate Bush or somebody who it's like, you know, we don't really see many of those figures anymore because they're just not they they don't have the kind of lucrative returns that the industry has to rely on. And this isn't just in music; it's certainly also in in mainstream cinema. Mm, I think as well the culture has changed that. Because, well, for example, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine recently and he's a big fan of uh, Oasis, you know, obviously the biggest band in the world at one point in Britain, um, from Britain, rather. Um, and they had this massive uh, concert in Manchester where they're all from. I don't know when it was, sometime in the 90s. And it was just this fucking huge concert. There was like lilos, like blow up inflatables, but like thousands, tens of thousands of people there. And you just, you watch the footage now and it's just unbelievable when you watch it. You just think, wow, it's incredible. And my friend said to me, he said, that's the last time that could ever happen. I said, what do you mean? He said, I know like well, you do have big concerts now, but the whole, and what he meant was the whole concept of that, like back in the day, you couldn't just jump on the, the internet and go, oh, who's this new artist? Like it took effort. You had to go to a record shop. You had to talk to your mates. You had to read magazines. You had to, you know, really, to find out even about the concert, you'd have to do a lot of manual stuff rather than just book the ticket online. You know what I mean? And I think he was kind of right. It's like that, I don't know, everything is so fast paced now. I feel almost like if a band does get that big, it's almost it's kind of manufactured into that way. It's not a natural progression. You know what I mean? De definitely. In fact, just, um, uh, just yesterday I was watching, um, some early footage of, uh, of Radiohead on tour in, um, the late nineties. And I was just watching, um, them and, you know, play, mm, I forget what, it, maybe it was Glastonbury. I can't remember, but you know, and they're playing like, um, like climbing up the walls from okay computer. And this is like a, this is a grim, dark, deeply scary song that just kind of trudges along, and Tom York is screaming and everything. And 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 you know, some some people don't don't like the band, and that's totally fine. But I think it's interesting to watch just objectively that style of music being be played and just have people screaming, just like people screaming and loving it. And I remember thinking that's really strange, just in terms of 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 genre. It's strange to think about someone creating that kind of, you know, 
music and 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 being responded to with such um, fanaticism. And of course, not everybody was that way. I remember, you know, you've, I've seen the old footage of like, um, you know, Good Morning America or whatever um, in the U.S. talking about, you know, how oh, uh, this is music to like slit your wrist to or whatever. It's just so how can you anyone listen to it? So certainly, but th- so there's that, there's that appeal too, where it's like, so you know, the 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 people on TV hate it, you know. That's what makes it good, I think, as well, for a lot of people, you know. There is this kind of, now we have the concept of normies. No motherfucker wants to be a normie, you know what I mean? It's, it's like the worst thing. I, I, um, I even say, you know, I'm like, oh, normies, whatever. And then, which is ironic because all of these kind of outsiders on the internet are always like rinsing me, like, oh, this journal thinks he's in the fold, he's a fucking normie. <laughs> but it, you know what I mean? It's yeah. that, it's cool to not be the normie, right? And I think that's always been the case. I, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But and but then there is kind of a, um, a tendency with, with mainstream music today to, um, you know, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like, like a, a, a sort of, like I, I'm waiting for an artist that is, um, radical, but that, um, you know, isn't going to like side with Trump, like Kanye West, you know, I think about Kanye back in the day and some of the things that he said, it was like, you know, yeah, that, you know, the establishment doesn't like him. Like, that's kind of cool. I like that about him and, oh, his music is good too. So let's rally behind him. Um, but there's kind of like a sort, uh, a sort of shared tendency to, um, you know, you know, you want the, you know, uh, dominant elites, so to speak, to be into the artists that you're into, because then maybe through them, you can have like major structural change or something. And so, but like, I kind of miss a, a band that can sort of give the middle finger to, you know, society at large or what have you, you know, maybe that's not that productive, but to like dominant elites. Um, and, and people really, really, really like that. I think, and I, this is crazy because I never thought I would say this, but to me, a modern band that kind of does that is the 1975 who's about to release their album. And, and I've, I've gotten some hate over my endorsement of them, but I just think that what, what, what they're doing um, is, is in a sense kind of that sort of define myself against the mainstream um, uh, tendency while also speaking to major issues about society. I don't know. I never thought I would say that. I just thought there was some dumb band. Yeah, but I think, though, the subversive will still always be there. Um, if people want to get hold of you, follow your work, where, where can they do that? Um, the Twitter handle is just at Grafton Tanner, and then the uh, email is uh, graftontanner at gmail.com.